8. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. This is God's inspired and errant authoritative word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that as your word goes forth this morning, you will send your spirit to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to embrace and relish the truths that we are about to hear and live according to them. And again, we ask for these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Some of you sports fans uh, will remember that back in 1961, on the first day of training camp, Vince Lombardi, the then head coach of the Green Bay Packers, gathered the team around him, held up a football, and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) He then said, I would like you to open up your playbooks to page one. And he said, We are going to review the basics. We are going to talk about the proper way to tackle, to block, to throw a football, and how to catch a football. As I was thinking about getting back to the basics, it reminded me of a pastor's conference that I attended a number of years ago. It was at Alistair Beggs Church, and the conference was called Back to Basics. And at one point, Alistair Begg got up, and he said, a man came up to me, and he said, I noticed that the title of the conference this year is Back to Basics. Last year it was called Back to Basics. What are you going to call the conference next year? And Alistair Begg said, Back to Basics. <laughs> and this man said, are we ever going to get beyond the basics? And Alistair Begg said, no, we're never going to get beyond the basics. And we don't get beyond the basics because they're like a foundation. You can build upon the basics, but you never move past them. Now, this morning, what I'd like to do, if it's not too insulting, is ask you a few basic, foundational, philosophical, and theological questions. So here's the first one. Why is there something rather than nothing? Am I going too fast? (laughs) Why is there something rather than nothing? You have two basic answers. The first answer is because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or, in the beginning, nothing, which then exploded and created everything. 
And there are scientists who hold to that, believe it or not. A world-renowned theoretical physicist and author, Lawrence Krauss, has a book entitled The Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. He explains the scientific advances that provide insight into how the universe formed. He tackles the age-old assumption excuse me, that something can arise from nothing by arguing that not only can something arise from nothing, but something will always arise from nothing. I wish somebody would tell that to my bank account. <laughs> Here's the second philosophical question I want you to consider. Who are you? And again, we have two basic answers. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created man, male and female, in his image and likeness. And it is for that reason that every person is to be treated with dignity and without prejudice. The other answer is if you came from nothing, you are just a cosmic accident that just happened to be able to crawl out of the primordial slime. Those are your two options. Here's another basic question. Why are you here? The best answer I can think of is given in the Westminster Shorter Catechism number one that says man's chief end, man's main purpose for existing is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you're the result of evolution, why are you here? You are not here for any particular reason whatsoever. Your life has no meaning, no purpose, no design. And many believe that. This is what the atheist Richard Dawkins says. Some people think that life in a universe without purpose is sort of bleak and cold. I think it's exciting, actually. I like the idea that nothing fundamentally has any purpose. To which I want to ask, then why are you writing books and debating if it has no purpose and no meaning? And then here's the last basic question I, I want to ask this morning. Where are you going after you die? If you came from nothing... And you are nothing with no purpose. You know where you're going? You are going nowhere. But the Bible boldly asserts that there is life beyond the grave. And the definitive proof of that is the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, on the third day. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have what is commonly known as the resurrection chapter. And Paul has written this chapter for a very specific reason. There are actually some in the church, believe it or not, who are denying the resurrection. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Paul is appalled that some would say there's no resurrection from the dead. And that's crucial because what you believe about the resurrection will drive your entire life. It will. It's going to have an impact on how you live your day-to-day -day life, even if it has an impact at the subconscious level and you're not aware of it. 
This is what Paul says a little later in, in verse 30. Paul says, why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? Paul's saying if there's no resurrection, I gain nothing. It's all, it's all been meaningless. And in verse 19, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. If there's no resurrection from the dead, this life of ours that we're living for Christ and serving him is, is a waste of time. If there's no resurrection, how shall we live? He tells us in the second half of verse 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So again, what we believe about the resurrection will drive our life. Now, because our resurrection is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul is going to begin this chapter by reminding the believers in Corinth about the basic gospel message. That Jesus died for their sins and rose again on the third day. And as we consider the gospel message this morning, I have three points for us if you're taking notes. Uh, first, I want us to look at the contents of the gospel, and then we'll look at the location of the gospel, and then we will consider the implication of the gospel. So let's, let's begin with the contents of the gospel, and it's clearly spelled out in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The two essential ingredients of the gospel are the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice very carefully, Paul says, this is of first importance. Not second, not third, not anywhere down the list. This is of first importance. He's not exaggerating. He means there is nothing more important than the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's what we have to see. Jesus died for our sins. His death had a specific purpose. He died for our sins. He died for your sins. Imagine you're on trial because of your sin. And God Almighty is the judge. And you're on trial for blasphemy. You've taken God's name in vain. And in addition to that, you're on trial because you've told lies. Because you've stolen. Because you've been sexually immoral. Because you've coveted after what, what your neighbor had and and you're on, you're on trial, and you know you're, you're guilty. We're all guilty, if we're honest with you. You know you're guilty. And be, but before the gavel can come down and sentence you, God's son steps forward. And he says, stop. Charge their sin to my account. I will pay the penalty for their sin. And because of that, you 
can be set free. Jesus died for our sins. There's nothing that's more important than that. I love what John Stott says about the cross. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. He took our place. And we're told that this took place according to the scriptures. It was prophesied hundreds of years earlier in many Old Testament passages, but perhaps the clearest is Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely, talking about the coming Messiah, who would be Christ, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that we could be forgiven. And then after talking about the death of Christ, Paul goes on and he says in verse 4 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, here's something I I want to insist on. Many of our gospel presentations are anemic. They're truncated. They're weak. Because they only talk about Jesus as our Savior who died for us. Now, that is glorious. Far be it from me not to praise God and to worship God for his death on our behalf. But how do we know that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross for our behalf so that we could be forgiven. And the answer is because he raised him on the third day. This is what we read in Romans uh, 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's key. The resurrection of Christ was his ultimate vindication that he was indeed the Son of God. Simply put, we could say it this way. It convincingly demonstrated that Jesus was precisely who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. So when we're telling people about the good news, let's make sure that we don't just talk about the death of Christ, but we also talk about the resurrection of Christ. Some of you will recall that in Acts 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's been poured out, and he's given an evangelistic message. And one of the things to notice that in all those verses of giving the gospel, there's actually only one verse that talks about 
the death of Christ, and many more verses that talk about the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Now, why might that be? Because the content of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins and rose again on the third day. So now you need to turn away from your sin. You need to put your faith in Christ. And you need to know that this Christ you're putting your faith in is alive. That's crucial. He's alive. God has raised him from the dead. And not only is he alive, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning over the nations. So yes, tell people about the death of Christ, glory in the death of Christ. It's essential, but let's make sure we move on to the resurrection of Christ. That's important. If we're going to be saved, we have to put our faith in a a Jesus who died for our sins and rose again on the third day. Have you done that? Have you done that? There's no other place that you can go for the forgiveness of sins. On one occasion, crowds were coming to Jesus, and then his, his teaching got hard, and, and they were leaving in droves. And he said to his disciples, do you want to leave too? And I believe it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else, if you don't come to Christ, where else are you going to go for the forgiveness of sin so that you can have eternal life? I don't know where else you can go. There's not even another religion in the world that claims to have a Messiah or a prophet who conquered sin, death, and the grave. Where else are you going to go? But you might have an objection. Well, how can we know that that Christ was raised from the dead? Paul goes on and he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. You can know that Jesus was raised from the dead because of all the eyewitnesses. Can I bring you back to court for another scene? Paul is on trial for his ridiculous notion of preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And somebody says, you really want us to believe that a dead man came back to life three days later? Do you you have any evidence? And and the Apostle Paul says, I I do. I have some eyewitnesses. And, And maybe somebody said, you know, mockingly, do you? Are they available? Maybe Paul said, uh, yeah, actually, they're out, they're out in the hallway waiting, and, and I could call them in if you'd like. Yes, call in the eyewitnesses to this resurrection. The courtroom doors open, and in walk two, three hundred people. You've all seen the resurrected Christ? We have. When Paul wrote this, He said most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Yes, some died, but most are still alive. If you don't believe me, you can go ask them. You can follow up on what I'm claiming. The eyewitness testimony was powerful. And I like what Blaise Pascal said. I believe those witnesses who got their throats cut. In other words, I tend to believe witnesses 
who will give their lives for what they're witnessing to. And witnesses testified that they believed in the resurrection of Christ and they were willing to lay down their lives. So that's the, that's the content of the gospel. That brings us to the location of the gospel. While the, the death and resurrection of Christ took place in time and history, it is also prophesied in the Old Testament. You may have noticed that twice in this passage, Paul said he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's not a throwaway line. Paul's making it really clear. What I'm proclaiming to you has been prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. I mentioned that in Acts 2, there's just one verse that refers to the death of Christ, and here's what it is, Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It all took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and that plan was laid out in painstaking detail in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples of what we can know about Christ from the Old Testament. We can know that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. We can know that he was going to be born of a virgin, that he would come from the line of Abraham and David. We would know that he was going to be betrayed by a close friend and that that friend would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We would know that he would die by his hands and feet being pierced. We would also know that none of his bones would be broken. That's a little detail, but it's significant. Some of you may recall that Jesus was crucified with two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And, and when they came to the one on the, the right, they, they broke his legs so he couldn't get air and he would die. And then on the other side, they came to him. They broke his legs so that he would die. And then they came to Jesus and they were about to break his legs. And they didn't because he was already dead fulfilling scripture. So instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers took a spear and put it in his side because he had to make sure he was dead. Because if Jesus wasn't dead, this soldier was going to lose his life. So he's like, I want to make sure he's dead. So he takes a sword, he pierces them in the side, and, and we're told that that also fulfilled scripture. And then when he was buried, he was buried in the tomb of a, a rich man. That's a little detail, but most criminals were not buried in tombs. They were thrown in a common dump because they weren't worthy of a proper burial, but Jesus received a proper burial. And then, of course, we also know from the Old Testament that he would rise again on the third day and his body would not see decay. Now, if you really think about the prophecies of Scripture, they, they are powerful. This is what Josh McDowell writes in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He says, Peter Stoner, a mathematician, calculated what the odds would be of any one person fulfilling just eight prophecies. And I gave you just eight prophecies. So here's what the odds would be. He found that the chance was one in 10 to the 17th power. In case you're wondering, that's a big number. That's a, a one followed by 17 zeros. When I taught high school Bible, I put that on the board so the students can see just how big that number was. Michaela, do you remember that? She was paying attention. It's, it's a big number. It's larger than the national debt. I mean, it's, it's a big number. Now, you just got that, huh? To give us a picture of, of what this would look like, 
Uh, Stoner goes on to say, if you take these odds, we could do it this way. Stoner illustrates by supposing we take 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mess thoroughly all over the state. Do whatever you want. Go from Houston to Dallas, wherever, wherever you want to go. All, all over the state. Stir the whole thing up. Blindfold a man. And tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes. But he must pick up one silver dollar and say that it's the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them be fulfilled in one man in their day. Isn't that astounding? Now, what would be the odds if Jesus fulfilled 48 prophecies? Not just eight, 48. And he did. The odds here are one in ten to the one. 157th power. Not to the 17th power, 157th power. But the Old Testament clearly has not just more than 8 or 48, but more than 300 prophecies concerning Christ. What are the odds? Next to zero. Unless... A sovereign God had a definite plan before he ever created the world. And he orchestrated the whole thing so that it would be fulfilled in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. This book is absolutely amazing if you're willing to look at it honestly. Now, if you're here this morning and and you haven't put your faith in Christ, I don't think you're going to be convinced by the historical evidence. I really don't. I don't even think you're going to be convinced by the obvious supernatural nature of the prophecies. I, I think it's going to take something even more powerful than that. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable, and, I, and I'm putting that parable in air quotes, and I'll explain why in a moment. But it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And both men die, and, and Lazarus, the poor man who lived a terrible life, he's in what's called Abraham's bosom. We would just say paradise or, or heaven. And, and the rich man, he's in a place of, of torment. And the rich man looks up and he says to Abraham, he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to, to dip his finger in some water and come over to me to, to cool my tongue. And Abraham says he can't. See, between you and us, a a chasm has been fixed, and he can't cross over from one side to the other, and you can't cross over from this side to the other side. And then this this is what the rich man says. Then I beg you, Father, to send him, talking about Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Remember that, five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone goes back to them from the dead, they will repent. He thought they would repent. Would they repent? If somebody actually came back from the dead and appeared to his brothers, would they repent? Now, this is why I put it in quotes. This is the only parable where Jesus uses a personal name, Lazarus. It's the only place where he uses a personal name. And it's interesting, when he describes this rich man, he describes him as a man who would wear the colorful garments of a priest or a high priest. And he mentioned that the rich man, who was arrayed in fine clothing like the high priest, also had five brothers. And there was a priest or a high priest in Israel who had five brothers. And here's the question. Did Lazarus come back from the dead? In John 11, some of you know, Jesus did raise a man from the dead. And it just so happens, a wonderful coincidence, that his name was Lazarus. And the high priest, the leaders in Israel, knew about the resurrection of Christ. You can read it later if you want. And they still refused to believe. So even a resurrection right in front of them was not sufficient to induce faith in Jesus. So that, that really raises a question, doesn't it? The historical evidence isn't sufficient. If the supernatural nature of the prophecies isn't sufficient, if the resurrection in front of someone isn't sufficient, what, what will be powerful enough to convince somebody to put their faith in Jesus Christ? What, what could be more powerful than those? There's one thing that's more powerful, and the answer is given in Luke 16:31. He said to him, Abraham speaking to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, a resurrection from the dead will not be sufficient. But Moses and the prophets, the word of God, will be sufficient for them to believe which is a reminder that there's more power in God's word to bring about faith than even seeing a resurrection take place right in front of you. And I know this. I am convinced of it. There is not a doubt in my mind because I've read it in the word of God and I have experienced it in my own life. When I was 20 years old, before I was converted, I'm sitting in a church like many of you, and just as clear as can be, God spoke to me. I did not hear an audible voice, but God spoke to me. God speaks through his word. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we're committed to expository preaching here, which just means working our way through the Bible, verse by verse, sometimes passage by passage, sometimes word by word. We are committed to unfolding the truths in God's word because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And when God speaks to you, you will hear and you will be convicted of your sin 
and you will put your faith in Christ. And I know right now some of you are hearing God's voice, and it's my earnest prayer that you do not resist the Spirit of God, but that you would yield, that you would say, yes, Lord, and put your faith in Christ. That's, that's my prayer. Isn't that why we come to church? So we can hear a word from God. Just, just recently someone told me that they were in a church service and a friend of theirs was with them. And, and 15 minutes in, into the sermon, their, their friend leaned over and whispered and, and said, he hasn't even referred to a single passage yet. Now, I know we don't charge admission to church, but if we did, I would ask for a refund. Why do you think I, why do you think I came here? Yes, I, I came to worship. I came to confess my sins, to commune with God at the table. But I came here hoping and praying that I would hear a word from God. And you didn't open up his word. The gospel is found in God's word. That's, that's where it's found. And then that brings us to the third point, the implication of the gospel. Let me return to uh, Romans 1, 4, if I could. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. As I said earlier, the resurrection was the ultimate vindication that Jesus was who he said he was. It was the ultimate vindication that everything Jesus claimed him about himself was true. So Jesus was telling the truth when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He was telling the truth when he said, the father has entrusted all judgment to me. He was telling the truth when he said, before Abraham was, I am because I'm a self-existing, eternal God. And he was telling the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All roads may lead to Rome, but there is only one road that leads to the Father, and his name is Jesus and the resurrection demonstrate that he was telling the truth. It's not hyperbole to say that Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I like what Tim Keller uh, says in his book, The Reason for God. He writes, Sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all, he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like this or that teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This is how the first hearers felt who heard the reports of the resurrection. They knew that if this was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing 
if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. So the question is, has it changed you? Have you been changed because of the resurrection of Christ? Maybe this is a better question. How has your belief in the resurrection altered how you live? If it hasn't altered how you live, you don't believe it. You may believe it rationally in your mind, but it hasn't sunk into your heart. Biblical belief comes from the heart, and it affects how you live your daily life. Now, let me not beat around the bush. I'm, just, I'm a straight shooter. Paul said, I, I present the word plainly. I'm presenting it plainly. I, there's no guile here. This is something that we need to understand. The resurrection of Christ has staggering implications. It means that when you die, you are going to stand in the presence of the risen Lord. And when you stand in the presence of the risen Lord, he will either be your judge or your savior. And it also means, if you can follow my logic here, and it's not hard to follow, this means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most thrilling thing that has ever taken place in history, or it is the most frightening thing that has ever taken place in history. Because when it comes to Christ, it's all or nothing. Again, he's either your Lord and your Savior, or he's your judge. And I'm praying that he will be your Lord and Savior. He is just looking for you to confess what you already know, that he's Lord. Romans 10, 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be assured that everlasting life is yours. So when I ask that, basic but foundational question. Where are you going when you die? Do not dismiss that question. It does drive your life. It does have an impact on how you live. And it really answers the age-old question that people have always been asking. Job asked the question in Job 14, 14. If a man dies, will he live again? Is there a possibility of life beyond the grave? And we believe that Easter answers that question. Yes, there is life beyond the grave because Jesus Christ conquered sin and death at the cross and he rose again on the third day. Let's close in prayer.